0: This Parsha podcast is sponsored in loving memory of Grace Hittery Geraz Bat Rachel. May her soul merit an ascension in heaven. Parsha's Behar has a brisk 57 verses. Nearly the entire Parsha is in only one chapter. There's 55 verses in chapter 25 and only two in chapter 26. And I think this is a great reminder ...of the fact that the chapter-slash-verse layout of the Torah is actually not of Jewish origin. It's actually of Christian origin. The way we break down the Torah is by the parshios, the the Torah sections, and by the aliyot, each parash is divided up into seven parts that we read on, on Shabbat. Now, my grandfather, blessed memory, when he would quote from the Torah, he would always quote which of the seven aliyot sections in which parsha. He would refrain from using the chapter and verse system that is of non Jewish origin. But for the sake of simplicity, I use the chapter and verses, and many people are comfortable with that. But it's a good reminder that this parsha it's kind of odd that the last two verses of our Parsha, which are the summation, which are the conclusion of our Parsha, somehow the non-Jews viewed that as the beginning of the next section. So 57 verses, 24 mitzvot. Most years, this week's Parsha Bahar is lumped together with next week's Parsha, but because this year is a leap year, they are split up into two. And the Parsha begins with the laws of the Shemitah. Shem spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying... Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come to the land that I shall give you, when you come to the land of, of Israel, land of Canaan, the land shall observe a Sabbath rest for God. For six years you sow your field, for six years you prune your vineyards, for six years you gather in your crop, for six years you participate in the agricultural activities. But in the seventh year, it should be a complete rest. You don't sow your field, you don't prune your vineyards. You can eat the aftergrowth but you can't reap it and you have to set aside the grapes. You don't pick the grapes. It should be a year of rest for the land, just like we have in our weekly schedule. Six days we work, the seventh day is Sabbath, the Shabbat we're off. Similarly for our fields as well, the six years of work and the seventh year you are off. Now this law begins with an interesting preamble. Hashem spoke to Moses, saying is the most common verse in the Torah. Here, we have that verse with a few extra words. Hashem spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, we are given the location, the latitude and longitude of this instruction. Why are we given the location of this statement? Now, in fact, they have not left Sinai since they arrived at the foot of the mountain In chapter 19, verse 1 of the book of Exodus. So essentially for 22 chapters in Exodus and 24 chapters in Leviticus, they haven't left Sinai. So for 46 chapters, they've been in the same location. And somehow over here, there's a need to tell us the location of this particular instruction. So Rashi tells us a very interesting idea. What's the connection between the laws of Shemitah, between the laws of the Sabbath of the land and Mount Sinai? After all, weren't all the laws given to us at Sinai? Why is this one singled out? So Rashi explains because just as with the laws of Shemitah, the general concept and the details and the particulars of the laws Were conveyed at Sinai, so too with all the mitzvos, the general concept and the particulars and the details of the laws were also given at Sinai. Now Rashi elaborates that in the book of Deuteronomy, and really from the beginning, from the middle of the book of Numbers, the Jewish people are encamped at the Arvos Moab in the plains of Moab. And there, the repetition of the Torah, the Deuteronomy, the Mishnah Torah is, is given. And there's many mitzvahs that are, are, are said twice. They're said once, so to speak, at Sinai, and they're repeated again in the complete retelling of the Torah in the plains of Moab. Whereas Shemitah, it appears only here, but it's not repeated in the plains of Moab the second time the Torah is repeated. And therefore, we can deduce that clearly all the laws are taught at Sinai because they're not repeated. And therefore, the laws of Shemitah are presented as the evidence that everything was said at Sinai, some things were repeated, some things were not repeated. That's what Rashi explains. Now, I think there's a a question that sort of uh, persists. You know, there's an important lesson that we'd be told that all of Torah, not just the general concepts, but also the details, the particulars of the mitzvot, were conveyed at Sinai. But why specifically is the law of Shemitah used as the stand-in to convey this important Piece of information. After all, we could have been taught like in the laws of the mezuzah or the tzitzis, or the red heifer, the paraduma or Shabbos. There's many other laws that could have been labeled, oh, this was told to Moses at Mount Sinai and this law, this insight that all the mitzvot were given at Sinai, not just the general concepts, but the details and all the particulars were given at Sinai with all their minute details. Why specifically is the law of Shemitah presented as the stand-in for all the mitzvahs to convey this important insight so i think there is a valuable lesson here you know the general notion of a moratorium of of a sabbatical it kind of exists in our world you have an academic a professor and they work for six years and they take a year off to, to, to study to ruminate whatever it is to write a book that's not an unusual thing journalists do it and by the way Fields do it as well if you're a farmer. It makes sense that the fields need some time to replenish the resources. It's not an uncommon notion, even today, to allow a field to lay fallow for a while, to allow it to rebuild and replenish and really supply itself with nutrients. The difference is that you don't have a university where all the professors all take a sabbatical on the same year, because then, of course, there's, there's no one to teach. And you don't have a country that has all of its fields take off the same year. You do a rotation. Maybe you divide your fields into seven. And every year, a different group of those, a different batch of those seven groups would take a year off. That makes sense. And therefore you have, you know, six out of seven, you have 85% of all fields are working every single year. Schmidt is different the entire year all the fields on the land lay fallow it's a very unusual thing you know you can imagine what would happen if all the accountants or the lawyers or the shopkeepers all took off a year or what would happen if all the physicians took a year off wouldn't the country and the society face grave problems and all the more so you know what's more basic than food To feed the nation. And the farmers who work on the agriculture, on the farms, they produce the food for everyone and they all take a year off. What's everyone going to eat? And it's also important to look at this in context. You know, today we can import grain from other countries and most people are not farmers. But in antiquity, when people lived in an agrarian society, everyone relied on agriculture. And the international trade wasn't as developed. If you don't have food, if you don't have farmers, everyone, everyone essentially dies. So what's this mitzvah that's being demanded of us that everyone takes a year off from agriculture? And perhaps we can suggest, and this is one of the themes that we'll see again and again throughout the parsha, that the law of Shmita is a, an instruction for us to cease relying on ourselves and rely only on God. There's a verse later on in this chapter that says, God tells us, well, what's going to be? You're going to say, what are you going to eat? And God says, don't worry about it. I actually covered, I'll give you bumper crops. You'll have three years worth of produce, of grain in the year six, and I'll cover you for year seven and for year eight. you will You'll be good. Still, for a farmer to fulfill this challenging mitzvah, they have to develop fortitude to rely on god and perhaps we can say that this is really the essence of all the mitzvot all the mitzvot are to foster that connection between us between the jewish people and god and for us to cease relying on ourselves and begin to rely on god and maybe even to realize that even when we do work in the fields we do plow and and sow and till and harvest, even then it's a miracle. Even then it's from God. After all, you take an inedible seed and you put it in inedible soil and you water it and you wait and what do you have? You have a fruit bearing tree. Isn't that a miracle as well? So what what we're being guided here, we're being trained here in the mitzvah of Shemitah is really to rely on God totally. And to turn off, so to speak, all those valves that we think give us, you know, the levers of control of our destiny and rely entirely on God. Maybe we can suggest that this is really the essence of all the mitzvahs. If you are to think of one mitzvah that is emblematic of the goal of the entire body of Torah, it's Shemitah. And therefore, yes, there's a need to convey a message regarding all of Torah and what better candidate than the mitzvah of Shemitah to say, oh, this was given at Sinai and all the mitzvahs, which are different examples of this message of reliance on God, they too are derived from this mitzvah. Maybe we can suggest an alternative reason as to why this particular mitzvah is labeled as the one that was given at Sinai. There is a Midrash that quotes a verse in Psalms. The verse in Psalms says, Bless God, his angels, men of strength, people that do his bidding, do God's bidding, and people who heed his voice. This is a verse in Psalms 103.20. Now, the Midrash understands that this refers not to angels, even though it says, Bless God, O angels. It refers to to people, to very special people. Now, there's a few interesting aspects about this verse. So first of all, if it's referring to people, it says, bless God, angels. So it refers to people as angels. Moreover, when it describes the activities of these people, it says people who do his bidding and listen to him. And if you'll notice, they do God's instruction and only subsequently do they listen to him. At Sinai. There was a very famous response that the Jewish people gave when God offered them Torah and they said, and nishma, we will do and we will listen. They flipped it around. They didn't say, oh, show us what's in the Torah and let us decide. They said, we're in, we're doing it, and afterwards we'll figure out what it entails. So who, says the Midrash, who is referred to in this verse in Psalms? The people who are like angels, the people who do and then listen? So the Midrash tells us these are farmers that obey the law of Shemitah. These are the ones who are the mighty ones. These are the ones who are brave. Why? Because if someone does mitzvah, you do a mitzvah for one day, you do it for one week, you do it even for one month, but for a whole year, who could do that? And what do we see? A farmer, he sees his field is empty, He sees his orchard is empty. These are not being tended to. He still has to pay property tax on his field. And he doesn't do anything. He lets his field lay follow. Is there anyone that's mightier than this? This person is like an angel. What does it take to have the strength, the wherewithal, to be so committed to the word of God? You have to be like an angel. You have to be someone who suspends your free will. You have to do, you have to commit, and only later listen. If you try to do calculations, how am I going to feed my family? If you ask that question, that's a question of a human, not of an angel. And similar to Sinai, God offered the Jewish people the Torah. What's the prudent thing to do? Well, to do your due diligence. What's inside of it? What are the laws? What are the ramifications? What are the consequences? Those are important questions that you have to asked to assess, to analyze the deal. And what do the Jewish people say? We will do, and we will listen. We're signing away our lives, so to speak. We'll figure out what it entails a little bit later. Angels don't do due diligence. They listen to God, no questions asked. And there's an amazing implication in this midrash. You know, the mitzvah of Shemitah wasn't given to the very, very righteous farmers alone. It was given to every, to every Jewish farmer in the land of Israel. And by the way, this was not only in antiquity, this law applies still today. And the majority or at least a sizable minority of farmers in Israel today still obey the Shemitah laws every seven years. 2008 was a Shemitah cycle year, 2015, and the next one upcoming is 2022. These are Shemitah years. And the brave, courageous farmers in Israel will be taking a year off. And what, in effect, it's telling us is that this mitzvah is an instruction to the farmer, you must become an angel, or at least you must accentuate your soul, your angelic half. And perhaps we could say this is the why this mitzvah was chosen as the stand-in for all mitzvahs, because what happened at Sinai? At Sinai, the Jewish people behaved like angels. They said, we shall do and we shall listen. And the Talmud tells us that this is the motto – of angels. And this is what every farmer who fulfills this mitzvah, what they do. And therefore, there's no greater mitzvah for us to be told God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Go tell the people, you remember the Sinai mindset? You remember when you were like angels? It's time to perpetuate that. You get to the land of Israel, you have the field, don't ask questions, rely on God, he'll take care of you. And there's a few interesting Rashi's here that I think really hammer home this point. The Sabbath produce of the land shall be yours to eat for you, for your slave, and for your maidservant, for your laborers, and for the resident who dwell with you. Rashi tells us that the prohibition of us doing work on the Shemitah year, it's not in enjoying it, it's not in eating it. Rather, we should not behave as if we are the boss Rather, everyone's equal. You, your laborers, the people who who live in your neighborhood, everyone's equal. Normally, you know, it's my field. There's no trespassing. Bitch sign, no trespassing. It's mine. I show, I display ownership. What happens on Shemitah? I say, you know what? The sign comes down. Everyone's equal. Really, it belongs to God. There's a famous story about Reb Chaim that two litigants came to argue over a property. Each one says, no, this is my property. The other one says, no, that's my property. So the rabbi, he takes the two litigants and they actually travel to the location of the property. And he lays down and puts his ear to the ground and he starts listening. Very bizarre. And then he comes up and tells him, you know, it's really interesting. You, person A, say it belongs to you. You, person B, says it belongs to you. But I'm listening to the property. And it says you guys are being silly because both of you will eventually belong to me, i.e. both of you will eventually die and you'll be interred in the ground. And that's a theme that we see here, that we think we're in control. We think that we're in charge. We have a say. We control our destiny. But ultimately, it's God. And ultimately, we're here for a couple of years. And the hope is that we could accentuate our angelic half before we are all interred in the ground and set to face the Almighty. And I think there's another law here in 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 this year, the seventh year, that really, again, reinforces this point. And that is the law of Shemitah with respect to money. If I loan someone money, they have to pay me back. But every seven years, the Shemitah cycle annuls those loans. So if I lend my neighbor $100, comes along loan Shemitah, and I can no longer demand repayment. Now, there are some workarounds, the, the Prisbol law. But I think this really does show us that we think we're in charge. We think we have this whole balance, this whole balance sheet of, you know, who owes me and it's all mine. And I have a, a calculation, figure it all out. But then comes the law of and we relinquish our control. Everything's in, in God's control. So that's the law of Shemitah. In verse 8, we read about a very similar law called the law of, of Yovel and that's the Jubilee year. So Shemitah is every seven years. Every seven cycles of seven, 49 years, the 50th year, the year that follows the seventh Shemitah year in that cycle is called the Yovel year or the Jubilee year. And this is very similar in laws to to but there are some additional laws as well. So we read in verse eight: You shall count for yourself seven cycles of sabbatical years, seven years, seven times, and then you have a total of forty-nine years. So that just like there's a mitzvah we read last week to count the forty-nine days of the Omer between the second day of of Pesach and the law of and the and the festival of Shavuot, there's a very similar thing here: seven days, seven weeks, seven years, seven cycles. Towards the 50th year, which is the Jubilee year. And this is actually one of the sister three to count these years. Every year you know which year it is of the 50-year cycle of yovo. When that year arrives, on the 10th day of the year, which is Yom Kippur, there is a special mitzvah to blow the shofar. And on that blowing of the shofar, it heralds freedom for the land. What happens? The slaves are freed, the ancestral lands are restored, and just as in the Shemitah year, meaning year 7, year 14, year 21, year 49, year 50, the year of the Jubilee, is also a back-to-back Shemitah year. Not only cannot you work on year 49, you cannot work on year 50 either. So there's a few things here to to unpack. Number one, this idea of the chauffeur blast. And we know that the chauffeur is a very powerful tool to inspire action. And the Sefer Chinuch in Mitzvah number 331, he tells us a very interesting idea. He says, you know, if someone has a slave, you kind of, you feel like you own them and it's very hard for you to release them. And here we're told that every 50 years, you have to relinquish all your slaves. So how do you do that? How do you muster up the courage to forfeit your property, so to speak? What you do is blow the chauffeur. And the chauffeur, it awakens you. It awakens your heart and it awakens the heart of your slave as well. And when you have this nationwide blowing of the chauffeur, this, it kind of sets a reset to the whole cycle. Everyone goes back to their home. Everyone goes back to the ancestral lands, all the slaves are freed, and you know what? It may be difficult, but when you blow the chauffeur, and everyone starts releasing their slaves, it'll be easier for you to release yours. Moreover, even if your slave says, you know what? I kind of like it here. He has to also be awakened by that blast of the chauffeur. It's time for him to press the reset on his life as well. Now, verse 10 is a very interesting verse here. You shall sanctify the 50th year, that's the yovel year, the Jubilee year, and proclaim freedom throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be the Jubilee year for you. You shall return each man to his ancestral heritage and return each man to his family. This verse is actually inscribed on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia that of course was run to proclaim to herald freedom in, in the United States. And the slaves are freed. Ancestral lands are restored. When the Jewish people got to Israel, They, each family and each tribe was apportioned a section of the land, and each family was given an ancestral plot of land that's theirs. And even if they sell it, they could sell it for a maximum of 50 years because every yoval cycle it returns to the family or its heirs. Now, there's an interesting Rambam who tells us how this would work because You know, the 50th year starts on Rosh Hashanah. The Jewish yearly cycle starts on Rosh Hashanah. Whereas the shofar blast is only on Yom Kippur, which is 10 days later. So what would happen during the interim stage of those those 10 days? So the Ram tells us, this is in the laws of Shemitah, chapter 10, law number 14, that from Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the Jubilee year, until Yom Kippur, the 10th day, there was a interim period. The slaves would not be freed, but would still not be working. And the fields would not be restored yet to their ancestral owners, rather. What would the slaves do? They would eat, and they would drink, and they would celebrate, and they'd be joyous, and their crowns would be on their heads. Once Yom Kippur arrives, and they blow the shofar, at that point, The slaves return to their homes and the fields are restored to their owners. an interesting idea that even the freedom kind of happens in stages. They're first released from servitude and they have a a time of joy, of celebration, and then they're actually sent home. Maybe similar to what happened in Egypt, there was that period at the end of the enslavement, the last year when the plagues were happening, the Jewish people had not yet left but they were not no longer still enslaved. Now, the rest of the Parsha is going to talk about things that don't seem to relate directly to the law of Shemitah. But Rashi tells us all the way to the the Parsha that there's a, a sequence that's following here. There's a certain progression. You know, the law of Shemitah is very demanding. You have to cease work on your field. And you have to risk, essentially, at least in your eyes, you risk the fact that you might go hungry, your family might starve. And it's very difficult. And you may say that, you know, this is too much for me. I can't handle that. I have to work the field. I got to plow it a little bit, plant it a little bit, just so I have some produce, so I have some grain to feed my family. And the rest of the Parsha describes the consequences of that decision. There's a certain subplot. Even though the rest of the Parsha seems to be talking about things that are not related at all to Shemitah. They're all describing scenarios in a sequential progressive fashion of what happens if you reject reject the law of Shemitah. So the first thing that happens is what happens if someone has to sell items that they own. They have to sell their possessions. So Rashi tells us, if you don't observe the Shemitah, you think you'll become rich after it. You'll, You'll think you'll survive. You think it'll help you financially. But you'll need to sell your movable property. And this is kind of the first step. People don't like parting with their stuff. But you know what? If it's movable property, if it's not real estate, it's less painful. If they don't have to sell their home, if they don't have to sell their field, it's not as bad. So this is the first kind of consequence of not obeying the laws of Shemitah is that you'll have to eventually sell your movable possessions. Now, there's an interesting Rashi here. The verse says, when you should make a sale to your fellow or make a purchase from the land of your fellow, do not aggrieve one another. So, law is talking about doing business with other Jews, but doing it with with integrity, not to cheat them, not to try to steal from them, to be honest in our business dealings with others. And Rashi also tells us that what's hinted in the verse is that when you do do business, You should try to find someone of your brethren, a Jewish person to do business with. So if you have two stores, you can buy your hardware in in store A and store B. One's owned by a Jew. One's owned by a non-Jew. We like to support our own. It's a mitzvah for you to support your Jewish brethren in the event that you have options. Don't deliberately say, I'm going to go to the non-Jew just to stick it to my, my Jewish friend. In fact, do the opposite try to give them the opportunity to the business when it is when it is possible. And then we read in verse 15 that when you want to renegotiate a deal, you negotiate it based upon the sales price. So for example, if someone sells a, a, a plot of land that is part of the ancestral heritage of one family, so like we said, it goes till the Oval, it goes till the Jubilee year. So let's say there's, you know, 40 years left to the Jubilee year. It's a 10th year of the cycle. So there's 40 years left, then in effect, you're not selling the land itself. It's sort of speak like a 40-year lease. And therefore, if you want to buy it back, we know the price per year, you just divide the sales price in 40 and that's the price per year. Therefore, you want to buy it back up to 35 years, you have five years left or whatever the year, however many years you have left, that's how much the sales price should be if you restore it, don't try to cheat your friend. He wants to buy his ancestral homeland, give it back to him at a fair price. And there's another law here in verse 17, you should not aggrieve your fellows. This, in verse 14, talks about not to aggrieve someone in business. In verse, in verse 17, it's not to aggrieve someone in with words. You should fear God. I am Hashem, your God. Don't cheat or torment with words. And Rashi explains, as he's done many times throughout this Parsha and the previous one, that whenever it says you should fear God, that's a reference to things that maybe you could harbor internal feelings that no one else could know. You could say, oh, I'm not really cheating because there's no way for someone to prove that you really are. But God, of course, knows what you're thinking. God knows what's happening in your heart. And if you're cheating him in your heart, it's still a violation of this mitzvah. And therefore, you should fear God. He knows what's really happening. Now, there's a very important law here that we see in the Sefer Chinuch, in the uh, elucidation of this mitzvah. Someone cannot, by this Torah law, aggrieve his fellow. But what if that person is the recipient of, of someone else's torment so what happens if someone is being bullied are they allowed to aggrieve the bully so typically we would think no you have to just turn the other cheek right no there's a law quotes the Sefer Chinach if someone comes to kill you you kill them first and that does not only apply in cases of life or death if someone comes to damage you to injure you You don't need to be a sitting duck. You don't need to be like sheep to the slaughter. You could defend yourself and you ought to defend yourself. And of course, this applies with children as well. I tell my children, if if someone's hitting you, you hit them back twice as hard. You have to defend yourself. That too is a Torah ideal. Don't be a victim. Don't be someone who just sits and, and bears the blow. You have to defend yourself. And that applies not only physically but also emotionally if someone's attacking you you have to defend yourself that's appropriate don't let our children certainly but we don't let other jews suffer needlessly this law not to give your fellow means don't to, don't to do it don't don't do it unnecessarily but if that's your way of defending yourself then that would be okay a little bit of counterintuitive idea but makes sense you shall perform my command, my decrees and observe my ordinances and perform them, then you shall dwell securely on the land. So Rashi here tells us another interesting idea. In the middle of these verses, we have a pledge from God. If you, if we perform his decrees, if we observe his ordinances, then we'll dwell securely in the land. And Rashi explains that this refers back to the laws of Shemitah. If we obey the laws of Shemitah, then we'll have stability in the land. Whereas if we reject it, he's going to kick us out. So similarly to the idea that we saw earlier, that Shemitah is all about us relinquishing our claim on the land and acknowledging that really it's all God's. And therefore, if we obey the law of Shemitah, then God says, okay, you could stay. What happens when we say, you know, we're in charge? God says, oh, you're in charge? Really? Let's see how in charge you really are. And we will get bounced out. And Rashi, again, this is a continuation of that progression that we spoke about, that when we disobey the law of Shemitah, we'll have to sell our stuff and we'll also, as a result of that, we will suffer the pain and the anguish of of exile. And there's a very interesting continuation here that we see in verse 19 through 22. The law will give its fruit and you will eat its fill. You will dwell securely upon it verse 20, if you will say, what will we eat in the seventh year? Behold, we won't sow, we won't gather. Says God, I will ordain my blessing for you in the sixth year. It will yield a crop sufficient for a three-year period. You will sow in the eighth year, but you will eat from the old crop until the ninth year, until the arrival of its crop, you will eat the old. God is promising us here a bountiful yield in the sixth year's crop to cover us for year six, year seven, and year eight until the time has arrived for us to have the new crop of, of year eight. This idea is presented as a psychological proof to Torah. You know, if the Torah was of human authorship, would this law, would it ever appear? And could a human make a promise, oh, take a whole, the whole nation, take a whole year off of agriculture. Oh, what's going to be? You're going to starve to death? Nah, don't worry. I got you covered. Obviously, a human who would be interested in the continuity of the people that they're trying to control would never make that instruction. So this is an interesting psychological proof that if the Torah, God forbid, if we considered that it was a hoax and the human, so to speak, authors wanted a myth to be perpetuated, this law and this pledge would torpedo his plans. And by the way, the fact that God promises that there will be a blessing in the crop, that's actually been observed in modern times. Like we said, the law of Shemitah is still observed in many farms in Israel. And there's been many documented miracles that happened in these in these societies, in these farms who observe the Shemitah. So for example, in 1952, there was a miracle that they, uh, the Shemitah observant farmers delayed planting based upon Shemitah considerations, and they planted way late in the cycle. And that year, the rain was delayed, and therefore all the farmers that had planted in opposition to the laws of Shemitah lost their their yield, but the ones who obey the Shemitah, they had an eighth year bumper crop. Another miracle happened in nineteen fifty nine, there was a locust swarm that stopped at the doors of the Moshavkomt, which was the first the first settlement in Israel that was exclusively inhabited by Shemitah observant farmers. Okay, so the next law that we see is the idea of redemption of the land. So we already saw that the land returns to its original owner at the Yovo. But what if the owner wants to buy it back? So that's the laws that we see over here. How, under what circumstances, under what parameters can the owner redeem the land? Now again, Right. As we mentioned earlier, there's a certain progression here. Someone doesn't obey the Shemitah. They'll eventually be compelled to sell their movable assets. And here we're describing someone selling their, their ancestral land, which is the next stage of degradation that results from disobeying of the, of the Shemitah year. So if someone wants to rebuy back their ancestral so heritage, it can only be redeemed after two years. So I sell, let's say in the 10th year of the, Yoval cycle, I sell my ancestral homeland, I cannot buy it back before two years have passed, so only, you know, two years, the, i.e. the 12th year of the Yovel of the cycle, 12th of the Jubilee cycle, only then can I buy it back. And the way the value is calculated is the per annum value of the field. So divide the amount of the sales price by the amount of years left until the Yovel, until the Jubilee, and then reduce how many years I've already sold it for, and then calculate what is left. And that the, the the new owner has to relinquish it to the family if they want to buy it back. The next law is if someone sells their home in a walled city. So again, this is the next level of progression. If you don't keep the Shemitah, you'll sell your movable assets, you'll sell your ancestral fields, and then your ancestral homeland. What are the parameters of redeeming a home? In a walled city versus an unwalled city. So we read, if a Manchester residence in a, in a walled city, this is verse twenty nine, its redemption can take place until the end of the year of its sale. Its period of redemption shall be a year. So here we see that a home in a walled city does not return by the jubilee, and it can only be redeemed before a year up to a year. Whereas in verse thirty one we see about a houses in open towns, i.e. in unwalled cities, which have no surrounding wall, shall be considered like the land's open field. It shall have a redemption. and shall go out in the Jubilee year. So there's a very interesting distinction here between someone selling a home in a walled city versus a home in an unwalled city. If it's unwalled, then it could be redeemed, just like the field, and it returns to its original owner at the Yovel. Whereas if it's a home in a walled city, then it can only be redeemed before a year, and it does not return at the 50th year, at the Jubilee year. So what could possibly be the difference between homes in a walled city versus homes in an unwalled city? So that's an interesting question. And there's various answers given, like the Rabban gives an answer. But a very interesting answer I see here in the Meshach Chachma. He explains if you have a walled city, why would there be a wall around the city It's most likely a border town, a town that secures the heartland. The people in the walled city, they have to be accustomed to living there. And what happens if every 50 years, the whole town is inhabited by newcomers? They don't know each other. They don't know their way around. They don't know the ins and outs of defending against an invasion. And then the heartland will be vulnerable. And therefore, if you sell your home, In a walled city, that's a permanent sale. You only have up to one year to buy it back because otherwise it is permanently in the hands of the person who buys it from you. And then we read about the status of the Levite cities and fields. They are always redeemable, never becomes permanently in the hands of the buyer and it can be redeemable right away. And then we see in verse 35, a mitzvah to prevent poverty before it's too late. If your brother becomes impoverished and his means fall to your proximity you shall strengthen him, a proselyte or a resident. This law applies not only to Jews but to non-Jews as well, provided that they are obeying the seven Noahide laws so that he can live with you. Don't charge him interest if you give him a loan. Don't give your food for increase. I am Hashem your God. i you the land of Egypt to give the land of Canaan to be a God unto you. So this is an interesting law here that not only do we help the poor with charity, but we also help the people who are struggling and we support them before they become poor. And Rashi gives us an example. If you have a you have a donkey, it's it's struggling with its load. you have one person could kind of support it and could stabilize it. Whereas if the donkey collapsed under the burden of its yoke, of its load, of its cargo, then you'll need a minimum of five people to, to, to make it stand up again and to, to, and to stabilize it. Similarly, if someone is struggling with a little jolt of support, they can be stabilized. Whereas if someone totally collapsed, then it's a much greater effort to, to restore them to stability. And therefore, we're told to support him. And if that means giving them a loan, we cannot charge interest. And even though Rashi explains, even though interest makes sense, you know, if I'm giving away my money to someone, I should get something in return. And therefore, the Torah tells us, no, 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 I am Hashem, your God, like we, like Rashi explains. Every time he says, I'm Hashem, your God, it's a warning, don't do it, even though you think you should do it or it's okay to do it. Don't charge interest. Now, there's an interesting distinction here. Even though we have to support the non-Jew, we are not mandated to give an interest-free loan to a non-Jew. In fact, we could, and we should charge interest. The difference is is that if if you have a Jewish brethren of yours and they need help, we don't charge interest to our brothers. Yes, interest makes sense. Interest makes sense. It doesn't it's illogical for me to to, to put my money in a place where it's not yielding anything. It's not going to get any return. But if it's your brother, you don't charge interest. And our sages tell us, if someone does charge interest when they loan to a Jew, then when people are resuscitated, the resurrection of the dead, those people will not come back to life. There's a famous story about Rabbi Ativa Eder, one of the sages of the end of the 18th and the early 19th century. He was the rabbi of a city called Posen, and there was a jewish man who loaned money with interest and when he died the burial society the Kadisha, they charged an exorbitant price for the burial and the man's family complained to the authorities it's not fair how come you know every person who dies they get a, a certain price whereas our father died and the Kadisha, the burial society wants to get back in it for loaning with interest and therefore, they charge a lot more. So they came to the rabbi for an explanation. And the rabbi explained that if someone lends with interest, you won't be revived when God revives the dead. And therefore, explains Rabbi T. V. that an average Jew is buried, well, how long are they going to be using that plot of land? It's temporary. They're like renting the burial plot. Whereas if someone is not going to be revived, well then it's permanent. And therefore, when someone is buried, a regular Jew is buried, it's 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 only a temporary, therefore it's cheap. It's like a re- it's like a rental. Whereas someone lends with interest, they're buying their burial plot permanently, because you won't rise when everyone else rises, and therefore you should be charged a higher rate. So this is the idea not to charge interest when we loan our fellow Jews. And Rashi also adds that there are several ways to try to avoid this with loopholes. Don't do that either unless there's a legitimate way to do it. Don't try to do it in an illegitimate way. Don't say, oh, this money is not really mine. It belongs to a non-Jew and therefore I can charge with interest. Don't try to find creative ways around this. Understand the principle. The principle is this is your brother and brothers help each other. And again, Rashi tells us that this is a continuation of the progression, the subplot of the whole chapter. If you don't keep laws of Shemitah, eventually you'll have to borrow money with interest. And the meaning behind these laws, we read in verse 38, I'm Hashem your God, I took a out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be a God unto you. The reason why I took you out of Egypt to give you those mitzvot and even the ones that are difficult. These are the conditions of our release. We were in shackles in Egypt, and God took us out on condition, we obey the laws, even the laws that are very difficult. And these are done in the land of Israel. And in Israel, God is a God over us. And Rashi tells us an idea that we've seen it actually previously in the end of Parshas Acharei, that if someone lives in Israel, they have a much deeper, more intimate connection with God. Whereas with someone leaves Israel, Rashi says that it's as if they're idolaters, it's as if they're severing their connection with God. Meaning that this high stature, this relationship, this priorities that we're developing in this parsha, the idea that we're living on a higher plane, we're relying on God and we're behaving in this in this very in this very elevated way, that's manifested In our living in the land of Israel. So all these laws, we lend without interest, we annul the loans on the Shemitah, we free the slaves, we return rightfully purchased property, we seize work every seventh year on our fields. All those laws are because of a close relationship, and that close relationship is especially present in the land of Israel. In fact, even today, the relationship that we have with God is felt most in the land of Israel. My grandfather used to love telling over the story of what happened in the Gulf War of 1990, 1991. In January, February of 1991, Iraq was shooting SCUD missiles both at American positions in in Arabia, but also at, at Israel, even though Israel was not involved in that conflict. And in fact, one of them, one of these SCUD missiles struck an American barracks in Riyadh and killed 27 soldiers. Whereas 39 missiles fell in the land of Israel and there was only one casualty, one direct casualty from those missiles. And the person who died, someone who lived in Tel Aviv, but he was someone who would deliberately annoy people by driving his motorcycle throughout the religious neighborhoods on Shabbat. And my grandfather used to talk about this, the fact that it's almost like, you know, even before the Iron Dome, there was like a, a heavenly Iron Dome that directed these massive missiles that would create huge destruction if it would hit heavily populated locations. They all fell in fields. They fell in places where no one was injured, no one was killed. And the only person that died was someone who was just a, a, a very kind of terrible character, someone who would go out of his way to disobey the will of, of God. So this is an interesting concept that we see here, that God took us out of the land of Egypt, Egypt to give us land Canaan and to be a God for us, and that is manifested most in, in Israel. Now, the next law is what happens when a Jewish brother of yours becomes impoverished and is sold as a slave. So you have a Jewish slave. And of course, this is the next progression. If someone disobeys God and works on his field on Shemitah, eventually he'll be sold as a slave to a Jewish owner. So what are the laws of having a Jewish slave? You shall not work with him with slave labor. Don't degrade him. Don't embarrass him. Don't force him to do demeaning work that injures his pride, that wounds his sense of, of self. So I should explain like don't force him to carry your clothing. Don't force him to tie your shoes. Don't degrade him. Don't treat him in a demeaning fashion. Like a laborer or a resident, he should be with you until the jubilee year. He shall work with you, and then he shall leave, he and his children with him, he should return him to his family, and to his ancestral heritage shall he return. So there's a few things here we see. Number one, that when he leaves, he and his children leave with him. Now, why would his children leave with him? And Rashi explains, according to the Talmud, that when you buy a Jewish slave, so of course it's it's only a temporary ownership, but it actually comes with responsibilities, and part of those responsibilities are not only feeding your slave, but feeding his family too. And therefore, when he leaves, when your slave leaves, his children go with him because they were really with you. They they were your responsibility when he was working for you. In addition, when he is restored, so you read in verse 41, he should return to his family and to his ancestral heritage. Not only he returned to his family, he's returned to his Dignity, if he had a stature they had previously, he returns that as well. He gets a clean slate later, like everyone else does on the Jubilee year. Don't treat him as a former slave. He is given a fresh, clean slate. Start from scratch, restore his dignity. He lost nothing over those years. Why? So we read in verse 42 For they are my servants, whom I have taken out of, the line of Egypt. Don't think they're your servants, they're really mine. I have priority. My ownership, so to speak, of them says God supersedes yours and therefore when you treat them as a slave, treat them in a manner that's befitting someone who is a child of God, someone who is a Jew. When you sell them, if you have to sell them, don't sell them in the manner of slaves. Treat them with dignity. Treat them with respect and don't subject them to hard labor don't force them to do needless work don't deliberately torment them and make them do things that you don't need as an example of this there's a famous episode with Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and he was washing his hands mitzvah to wash your hands under certain circumstances you go to the bathroom you have to eat bread etc and he was washing his hands very sparingly using the water very little and someone asked him well, why don't you use more water why don't you use the water more liberally and he says, well, who has to collect this water? It comes from the well. Someone has to schlep it. Your mitzvah does not mean someone else should be forced to have to schlep more water. That's an example of, of, of being so sensitive. Yes, we're paying them. Yes, if we have a Jewish slave, we, so to speak, own them. But don't force them to do things that are unnecessary. Even if you see some benefit, try to make their life easier. And then in verse 47, we read about the ultimate degradation of, If a Jewish brother of ours is sold not as a slave to a Jew, but as a slave to a non-Jew. And of course, in that instance, we try whatever we can to get them out of that predicament. That said, even though they could be redeemed right away, and we should try to do everything we can to prevent him from falling so low, from losing their identity as a Jew, from being around people who – don't value the same priorities that we value, nevertheless, if we redeem them, we have to pay fair market value for them. And Rashi explains, even if we have the power, we're in charge, it's our land, we don't cheat the Gentile. Why? Because if we do that, it desecrates God's name. And in fact, our sages tell us that not only are we not allowed to steal from a non-Jew, Stealing from a non-Jew is more severe than stealing from a Jew because there's two sins. A, the sin of stealing, and B, the sin of desecration of God's name. These non-Jews say, hey, look at these Jews. They say they're God's people. Look how they behave in this amoral fashion. And I think it's it's important to note here. Can we think of anything more important than to rescue a Jew who's being treated as a slave by a non-Jew? The objective is something of such importance. Nevertheless, we have to act with integrity around uh, everyone, but certainly around non-Jews. There's a story with uh, my great uncle, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenesti, He was one of the great uh, leaders of American Jewry in, in the 20th century, but he originally was from Europe and he was a rabbi in Europe. And it was an amazing story. We know that Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was someone who was very fastidious about being honest in every way. And there was a story, one of the people, one of his constituents in his town in Europe, they went to the bank and they had to pay something. It was a bank or a postal service. And the clerk paid him a little too much. And his question to the rabbi was, must I go back and return the money to to the clerk? So the rabbi tells him, I think it's it's appropriate for you to do that. After all, you know, if you unilaterally volunteer to return the money, you were you were undercharged, they gave you too much change, whatever it may be. It's proper for you to go, it'll be a Kiddishem, it'll be a sanctification of God's name. They'll say, hey, look at these Jews, they're very moral. So you went and returned the money to the to the bank, to the postal service, to the clerk. Sometime later, the rabbi himself had to go to the had to go to the post post office. He had to buy some some stamps. And he buys the stamps and the clerk gives him a lot of stamps. And it seems like it's a lot more than he paid for it. And he starts walking out and he sees the clerk snickering behind him. So right away he says, you know what? I'm going to count these stamps to see if I got more than I was entitled to. And he counts them. And He realizes that he, he was, he was given too many stamps for what he paid. And he understood that the clerk was testing him to see are all Jews being honest or was it that one Jew? The rabbi comes in, what's, what's he gonna do? Right away he turns around and he returns what was, what was extra, what he didn't pay for. Many years later, Rabbi Kamenetsky moved to America in 1935. Many years later, after the Holocaust, after World War II, the rabbi found out that in that town, there were only a few righteous Gentiles that hid Jews in their home. And one of them was that very same clerk from the post office. And the rabbi declared, I think I could say with certainty that the reason why he had this respect for human life for the Jews is because he saw that they were honest, they acted with integrity. So here's this idea that even though you know, we could say, hey, you know, we have police power. We're in charge. We could discriminate against the non-Jews. We could, and who's going to stop us? Still is a mitzvah for us not to steal. We have to act with, with integrity, with honesty. Even if we're trying to save someone from the terrible fate of being a slave to a non-Jew, we still cannot cheat them have to pay them fair market price if we want to buy them back. We don't want to be the ones, God forbid, who – Cause a desecration of of God's name. In the event that the Jewish slave was not redeemed, then he too shall go out in the jubilee year, him and his children with him. Rashi again tells us that that means that even if a non Jewish owner owns the slave, he is obligated not only in taking care of the well being of his Jewish slave, but of that slave's family as well. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I've taken out of the land of Egypt. I am Hashem, your God. This is a clear elucidation here in verse 55 of the relationship that the Jewish people have with God. They are servants to me. They're my servants. I take them out of the land of Egypt. I am Hashem, your God. You know, the entire parsha is a reflection of this idea that we are totally committed to God. We're his servants. He took us out to create that special heightened relationship this new individual this new jew so to speak that is given all these laws and you know if we didn't have torah many of these laws maybe all of them we wouldn't we wouldn't obey why do we obey them because of this verse god took us out he wants to create a special relationship with him where his servants he took us out of a line of egypt to create that special relationship with us we're living on that heightened elevated plane The final two verses of the parsha: you shall not make idols for yourself, you shall not erect for yourselves a statue, a pillar, and you're landing up in place a flooring stone upon which to prostrate yourself, for I am Hashem your God. What is the connection between the last concept, the last law, the last topic of chapter 25 and this one in chapter 26, Rashi explains what this is telling us. This is still a reference to someone who was sold as a slave to the non jew That person should not say, hey, after all, my boss, my owner, he's acting in the immoral fashion. He's engaging in promiscuity. He's engaging in idolatry. He's desecrating the Shabbos. I should behave like that? Therefore, the Torah tells us, don't make an idol for yourself. My Sabbath you shall observe. My sanctuary you shall revere. I am Hashem. Even someone who has fallen to the lowest stature possible. They've lost everything. And they're not, they're a slave and they're not even owned by a Jew, they're owned by a non-Jew. Even that person is given some guidance how to behave in, in that scenario. And I think the lesson for us is, you know, we can say, hey, what difference does it make if I observe this mitzvah? After all, I'm not religious. Or after all, I have so many other problems. I have so many other sins. Let's just lump it all in together. You can't do that. Why? Because even someone who has re- reached the absolute nadir of the human experience, even he is, is given guidance of how to behave in that situation, in that scenario. That's a wrap on this parsha, parsha's behar. Next week, we have parsha's behu kosai, the final parsha in the book of Leviticus. I hope you enjoyed. Please email me if you have any questions or comments. The email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Of course, please sample the other podcasts, the Jewish History Podcast, Eternal Ethics on Pirkei Avos, the Mitzvah Podcast, all the other podcasts that be found at my website, RabbiWalby.com.